Growing up, I had my fair share of folklore and urban legends, just like everyone. But something that my family and the surrounding families really pounded into us as children was the stranger danger concept. Growing up, a lot of strange and downright brutal crimes happened not too far from where I was, and I was entirely oblivious to it as a child. Now, being an adult and reading into these stories and researching them, it has absolutely blown my mind that I was even allowed to go outside. Anyways, I'm going to be sharing three more strange and downright sad true crime stories that I have looked into over the last couple of years that I think you guys would really enjoy. As always, if you enjoy these stories, please hit that like button as it helps me out a ton. This is a true crime video, so YouTube is undoubtedly going to suppress it and demonetize it. So if you could leave a comment, that would really help it. And don't forget to send in your stories at swampdweller.net. HelloFresh delivers fresh quality produce from the farm to your door in less than a week's time so you can savor summer flavors all season long. Get 16 free meals plus 3 free gifts with code SWAMPED16 at HelloFresh.com SWAMPED16. Come join me and everyone else in the swamp using America's number one meal kit. The last thing you would ever expect to happen in a small or rural town in the middle of nowhere is a gruesome quadruple homicide. By all accounts, Ina, Illinois is a quiet, sleepy town that did not have much more than a general store, a bank, a gas station, a post office, or a firehouse. This case caught my eye. I would assume it was because I came from a small town with roughly only 900 people in it. These small town cases hit home for me. This case is from the 80s, 1987 to be exact. It has many strange and brutal details and is not for the easily squeamish. This is the unsolved story of the Dardine family murders. Before we get into the inevitable, sad, and tragic story of the Dardine family, let's take a few moments to get acquainted with them. The Dardine family consisted of Russell Keith Dardine his wife, Ruby Elaine Dardine, who was pregnant then, and their two-year-old son, Peter Dardine. Russell and Ruby went by their middle names, so I will refer to them as Keith and Elaine throughout the video. By all accounts, it seemed that the Dardine family was well-liked, and no one who knew the family had anything wrong to say. The family lived in a trailer home in the woods close to Keith's job at the water treatment facility. Elaine worked at a local office supply store in Mount Vernon. The Dardines were very active in their local church. Keith and Elaine were part of the musical ensemble in the church. Keith sang lead vocals and Elaine played the piano. They were already pinching pennies to save money for Peter's college fund and, as I mentioned earlier, were expecting another baby very soon. In 1987, the Dardine family was expecting their second child and wanted to move to a better area to raise their family. Not to mention, they needed an extra bedroom for the baby. To put the cherry on top, there had been around 15 homicides in Jefferson County alone in the previous two years they had been living there. Let's put that into perspective quickly. Only about 38,000 people live in Jefferson County, Illinois. So obviously, they decided to put their mobile home up for sale. They had hoped to find a home with a bit more space up in Mount Carmel. This had been the area Keith had grown up in. Due to the violent happenings around them, 
Keith had become increasingly more protective and paranoid about their safety. He was so on edge that when a young woman knocked on their door asking to make a phone call one night, he would not let her in and told her to go away. Some may say this is paranoia, but I would say that you can never be too safe. The family would never get the chance to move to a safer area though. It was November 18th, 1987, and Keith had not shown up for work. This is very out of character for a reliable, dedicated employee like Keith. Keith's boss was instantly concerned and made a call to his home but got no answer. Keith's supervisor would call Keith's parents who both claimed to have not seen or heard anything from him. By nightfall, the police had been dispatched to the Dardine home to check on them. Keith's father, Don Dardine, met with the police to give him the keys to the mobile home. Inside, police found a scene so horrific and so sick that it would forever change everyone involved. First, police found Elaine and Peter Dardine dead. They had been beaten to death brutally and killed with a baseball bat Keith had bought for Peter earlier that year. Elaine had been beaten so severely that she had given birth, and yes, the killer was so gruesome he had even beaten the newborn. Whoever had done this had tied up Elaine with duct tape and gagged her. The killer had cleaned up the area, showing they had no worries about being in a rush to leave the scene. The only person not found was Keith Dardine. Now, the police initially thought he had murdered his own family and was now on the run. But these suspicions were short-lived as Keith's body was found in a field not far from the family's home. He had been shot three times, and even more gruesomely, his manhood had been severed. Keith's car was found parked outside the local police station in a nearby town called Benton, which shows how bold this killer really was. For those interested, Keith drove a red 1981 Plymouth. From the images I could find, it's a hatchback style car. The car was parked just 10 miles from the Dardine family home. The blood found in the vehicle, which is assumed to be Keith's, shows it may have been the site of his murder and mutilation. The case starts to get even stranger. Elaine and Peter were estimated to have been dead for roughly 12 hours before they were found. Keith had likely been dead for closer to 24 to 36 hours before he was discovered. This detail has made police question whether this was the work of one killer or multiple. Officials were having a tough time putting together a motive. There was no sign of forced entry as the back door had been left open. Robbery did not seem to be the motive either as cash and valuables were easily accessible but left untouched. No SA was determined to have been done to Elaine, which rules out that aspect. This crime seems way too brutal and violent for it to not be something personal. I am not the only one with this mindset. The Franklin County coroner who did the autopsy on the bodies does not believe this was a random act of violence. He said, I believe it was a very personal, deliberate thing. Police have speculated this could potentially be a crime of mistaken identity. Of course, many theories exist on what happened to the Dardine family. Keith's mother said she believes someone tried to force Keith into selling drugs, and when he refused, he got mutilated. I find this a bit hard to believe simply due to the sheer amount of violence involved in the crime. If he were simply shot, then that theory would make more sense to me. That's not to say it didn't happen that way, though. 
Keith's mother also had an idea that someone may have had the hots for Elaine, and when she did not accept their advances, they took their rage out on the family. This could be plausible, but wouldn't you think S.A. would occur? Maybe not, but it does make sense and could be a possible answer. The next theory will make many roll their eyes and potentially even click away, but this theory has some semblance of logic. Rumors ran wild among locals that the unborn baby Elaine had had been ripped from her womb. This combined with the mutilation of Keith's man parts sent the locals in a frenzy, thinking satanic ritual killings were being carried out in their neighborhoods. The 80s were the absolute height of the satanic panic hysteria, which didn't help officials move this case forward. As unfortunate as it may be to admit, these rumors, even though likely untrue, did impact the investigation in some sort of way. Whether it was directly or indirectly, it did cause the investigation to be muddied, in a sense. The last theory I wanted to touch on is the serial killer theory. I am unsure where this was suggested or who, but there was a string of suspected serial killings in the area. A regional serial killer was a solid idea then, and still could make the pieces to this puzzle make a bit more sense. Despite a long-standing investigation from Illinois State Police and Jefferson County Police, roughly 30 detectives working full-time, including FBI involvement, nothing outside of a few suggestions and potential profiles came of this. The FBI stated this crime defied their analytic methods and finding a motive was nearly impossible. It is safe to say that in a town as small as Ina, Illinois, the locals were all on edge and paranoid after all of these murders. A local Ina resident told the local coroner, who also doubled as a local doctor, that he lost 14 pounds due to the stress of living next door to the Dardeen family home. The Dardeen family's landlord even stayed up at night reading books to stay awake out of fear. Nobody knew why the deaths were happening, which made everyone uneasy and made them all feel like a target. This case would sadly, like many others, become a cold case. Now, this doesn't mean it was forgotten, though. Joanne Dardine has worked tirelessly to keep a light on this case. Throughout the 1990s, Joanne would call the single detective still working on the case. She would give them potential leads and ask if they had any new information. She also acquired more than 3,000 signatures from the area to get the Oprah show to share their family's case on the show but it was declined due to the violent nature of the crime. She did eventually get the case shared on America's Most Wanted after they initially decided not to air the case. For some reason, they did decide to air it in 1998. Sadly, nothing would really come from this though. No new leads or tips. The story doesn't quite end there though. In 2000, serial killer Tommy Lynn Sells, arrested for cutting two girls' throats in Texas, started to confess to many other unsolved murders across the country. Sells claimed he was a carny who train-hopped across the country. He claimed to have killed the Dardeen family after Keith had invited him over for dinner, after meeting him at the pool hall or a truck stop. He claims Keith tried to get him to partake in a threesome with his wife. This story is highly doubted by many though. The Dardeen family were extremely religious, as we mentioned before. Keith was very cautious. Remember how Keith declined a young girl to come into their home and use their phone? 
why would he let a 22-year-old man in? This was a common question from locals at the time. Even though Tommy Lynn Sells would confess to upwards of 70 killings, he was only convicted of 22. Officials were convinced he committed those 22, but sadly the Dardeen family was not included in that list. It would be doubtful Tommy Lynn Sells killed the Dardeen family, but not impossible, I guess. As of now, the complex and disturbing case of the Dardeen family murders remains unsolved. This case is one of the heaviest and downright violent I have ever investigated. Every day you find an issue so disturbing and violent, but has no motive and no real viable suspect. If you have any information or tips on what could have happened all those years ago to the Dardeen family, please contact the Jefferson County Police. I would also love to know in the comments down below your theories on this case as well. Join the conversation. I get a few different vibes from this case. I almost feel like this was an act of jealousy, maybe. I don't know. It's hard to judge this crime based on the little context we are given. Hey Swamp Folk, thanks for listening to these true crime horror stories. Be sure to hit that like button if you haven't, and subscribe if you're new. Now, let's get back into these downright strange and tragic cases. There's nothing worse than losing a loved one, but what if you had no information about what happened to them? Well, the loved ones of Daniel Reeves would tragically face this reality in May of 2008. Daniel Reeves and his girlfriend Sarah were enjoying a night together in Madison, Indiana. It was May 3rd, 2008 and the couple enjoyed a nice date night watching a movie. They were at Sarah's house at the time. The couple went to bed and sometime around 4am Sarah woke up. She noticed Daniel was no longer there and she had received a text from Daniel saying nothing more than, I love you. She tried to call him, but he was not answering his phone. This would be the last time anyone would ever hear from Daniel Reed. Thus the mystery of what happened to him begins. Before I go any further I should mention Daniel was last seen wearing a white or light blue t-shirt brown steel-toed sneakers, tan shorts, and potentially a black leather jacket. Daniel had no known medical issues besides social anxiety, which was very mild as claimed by his parents. He has dark brown hair and blue eyes. He is 5'11 and weighs about 145 pounds. About a week after being reported missing, Daniel's 1999 Chrysler Sebring convertible was located on Green Hill Drive, very close to Clifty Falls State Park. This park is a hiker's heaven. Many college students and residents often use these trails in the fall and spring months. Daniel had much experience in the area as he was raised there. It is reported that he had even hiked in this area in the past. The real question is, though, why would Daniel Reeves decide to go for a hike at 4am? At the time it would have been around 42 degrees outside. Since Daniel was last seen wearing shorts, this would surely not be the ideal hiking setup. When officials found the car, they reported it was unlocked, which Daniel's family thought was strange as he always locked his car, even in the driveway of his own home. Daniel's wallet, including all of his credit cards and IDs however, and Daniel's phone and keys were nowhere to be found. The Indiana State Police searched the car as well as they could and claimed to have seen nothing of worth. 
A search was conducted in the Clifty Falls State Park on May 10, 2008. Clifty Falls is a full park of railroad tunnels, caves, and waterfalls. This can surely make hiking the garden a real challenge at some points. The park is a relatively small one, only roughly two square miles. Nothing was ever found that could be tied to Daniel or his disappearance. Cell phone records show he has never used his phone since that last text to Sarah. The question of what happened to Daniel Reeves remains a mystery. Before I end this look at the tragic disappearance of Daniel Reeves, I'd like to take a few minutes to go over some speculation and theories I found while looking into this case. First, I'd like to say I stumbled upon this case on Reddit from a write-up by a user named By a Freeway I Confess. This user's post shared Daniel's Charlie Project profile and his subject. I found this case interesting as it seemed that this may have been a potential suicide. The details seemed to lead in that direction, but I, of course, never want to be the insensitive guy and throw out wild accusations like that with no proof. While I could not find much about this from the archives online, I found many theories on forum posts. Many of these theories focus on mental health. After digging, I found a section where Daniel's parents claim he had no medical or mental problems outside of slight social anxiety. A few users on this forum pointed out that parents aren't usually fully informed about their children's mental health, especially when they move out and start their own lives. Another theory mentions that it is widespread to park further away from the entrances like Daniel did, as the park is small and limited to trails. Foot traffic off the beaten path would be scarce to none. These off the beaten path trails also take you into extreme terrain that could easily cause death even for the most experienced hikers. Ultimately, this story may never be solved, which ultimately makes me super sad. I only wish that I could know what led to those final moments in Daniel's life that made him decide to take this hike. This case reminds me a lot of the story of John Glasgow, who disappeared mysteriously in 2008 under similar circumstances. John's skeleton was eventually found, but sadly nothing will ever be understood of how he died. What do you think of this case? With the tiniest details shared, it feels like a suicide story. This is speculation though, so please be respectful in the comments. If anyone struggles with mental health and needs someone to speak to, the Suicide Prevention Hotline is open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You can call them at 1-800-273-TALK. Valentine's Day is one of those minor, yet busier holidays that many lovers across the globe partake in every single year. I know that I love showering my loved ones with gifts on this day to show them how much I care. It seems not everyone is as festive as us. Some people have more nefarious and sinister intentions. This story is a tragic and unsolved cold case from the late 1980s in the rural south. This is the Jenkins County Jane Doe story. To begin with, we need to go back to 1988 in the small town of Millen, Georgia. A man and his girlfriend were scouring the area for cans and bottles for money. Not my ideal way to spend Valentine's Day, but you do what you gotta do. While the man's girlfriend waited in the car, he jumped into a dumpster to find some more cans. 
Before we go any further, I must mention in the days before this event a foul odor had been reported around the area. No one had seemingly thought much about it at the time though. While searching around, he found the source of this wretched smell. This man discovered a duffel bag. He opened the bag with his pocket knife and instantly regretted it. He had made a genuinely gruesome discovery. There were body parts wrapped in plastic stuffed into this duffel bag. The body parts were severely decomposed at this point. At first, the man was in shock and didn't know what to do with this find. For some reason, his first reaction was to get a friend to look at the contents to confirm that this was indeed a bag of body parts. This was precisely what it was, though. A dismembered, decomposed woman's body. But who was this poor woman? This is the true ongoing mystery. Around 4.45 that same day, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, aka the GBI, and the local police were on the scene. Due to Millen being such a small town, the local coroner didn't have the experience needed for this crime scene. Since the local facilities were not equipped for this, the autopsy was conducted in Atlanta by a GBI coroner. It was reported that the woman had been in the dumpster since Friday the 12th, two days before she was discovered on Valentine's Day. But reports show she had been dead for at least four to seven days before that. There were no apparent signs of injury, but her feet had been bound. Many other tests were run on Jane Doe. She returned negative for any drugs or seminal evidence, which would have been left behind if an assault occurred. Unfortunately, no cause of death could be 100% determined, which makes profiling the killer that much harder. Rumors do speculate it could have been due to some sort of asphyxiation. No matter how she died, she is considered a murder victim. Since Jane's Doe's remains were in such bad shape, the post-mortem photos were not released. At least I could not find them, that is. There are two publicly available reconstruction photos of Jane Doe, though. This first sketch was made up by GBI forensic artist Marla Lawson in 1988. It was admitted not to be as detailed as the composite, which was made later. The composite shows what most likely Jane Doe would have looked like. She was estimated to be somewhere between the ages of 16 to 25. She was roughly 5 foot 4 to 5 foot 5 in height and probably weighed around 135 to 145 pounds. She was described as having a slim build. She has long, thick brown or black hair. There is a rather large dispute in her eye color. Multiple sources report it listed as brown and others have it listed as unknown. Her dental records show she had good teeth, her upper teeth were somewhat crooked, and she had recently had a lower wisdom tooth removed not too long before she was killed. The last detail I could find is that Jane Doe's legs were freshly shaven. Another detail that has been up for speculation and confusion is Jane Doe's race and ethnicity has not been identified. This may seem trivial, but knowing a victim's race and ethnicity can reveal much information about the culprit. Media rumors speculate that she was Asian with the possibility of being mixed. Though locals disputed that fact and assumed that she was in fact Latina or Native American, Marla Lawson, the GBI forensic artist who created the reconstruction of Jane Doe based on the post-mortem pictures, thought she was of Asian or white descent. 
The stalemate in conflicting details could be a real monkey wrench in the progression of this investigation. Inside the duffel bag, officials found a pillow, bedspread, bedsheets, and a towel alongside the body parts. The pillow and quilt seemed to be from the same matching set. They both had the same rose design. The bedsheet reportedly had no unique markings on them. The towel had printed butterfly designs on it. The bedding was eventually linked to a Korean manufacturer. Officials aren't sure, but they think these items could have been Jane Doe's property. Now, I did find more details on this case while I was digging around online. I studied deeper into Millen, Georgia and the surrounding areas specifically in 1988 when this crime occurred. For some context, Millen is a tiny town. Even today, the city barely hosts 3,100 residents. In the 80s, the town only boasted a few hundred more residents sitting along 3,800 in its prime. The town of Millen at the time had most of its population made up of African American families. Asian American families were a tiny minority in Millen at the time. After looking at a historical table of the town's population, you can see the Asian American population was only about 0.17% of the population. If we look at the Native American population, it was even less at only 0.06% of the people that lived in Millen. So if Jane Doe came from any of those racial backgrounds, a quick look into the resident at the time could find out very quickly who fit those backgrounds and could very well help determine who this girl is. Speculation that does argue against this point, though, is that due to the demographics of the area and the fact that the undocumented migrant workers who came through there seasonally is suspected that Jane Doe may not even been from the local area at all. It is common for serial offenders to abduct their victims and drop their bodies off in unrelated locations to confuse investigators. Let's be a bit more specific. The dumpster Jane Doe was found in was located off Kaiser Road and Old Perkins Road. Though the actual dumpster was taken as evidence, the area has been cleared now to enlarge the road. There are endless speculations on who, where, and why Jane Doe was killed. Some think she could have been a part of the ever-growing human trafficking epidemic. This was particularly bad at the time, especially for Asian immigrant women who were often vulnerable and easily manipulated at the time. While reading write-ups on this case, I stumbled upon a Reddit post that mentioned that in Georgia at the time, during this time that this was all happening, these women came from various nationalities. Many were Asian, and exceptionally high number of them originally came from China. It has been suggested that Jane Doe was a victim of human trafficking and could have worked in the many illegal massage parlors and spas which were merely a front for brothels and human trafficking. Some more exciting details noted at the time is that the man who initially found Jane Doe mentioned he saw a small brown car parked nearby. When he returned with his friend, he noted that the car was gone. I was also able to find some rumblings of an additional report that this alleged small brown car was also seen by some children who were playing nearby. During the interview, the local police were told some interesting information from these two children. They said that they had been playing near the dumpster when they heard somebody crying. They said it was mumbled, but it still sounded like, My baby! My baby! At around the same time, they claim a car matching the description of the small brown vehicle pulled up to the dumpster. They described a man and a woman who both looked to be in their 50s. 
they got out of the car and proceeded to throw something away. On top of these developments, when police further searched the dumpster, they found a half-full gas can. It's not apparent if they think this is related, but I figured I'd throw it in there anyways as well. We don't have too much to go off of. It is speculated online that the killer probably planned to burn the body. When Jane Doe was discovered, many leads came in from the public, but all of them turned into dead ends almost as quickly as they had come in. Now before I wrap this case up and open the discussion in the comments with you guys, there are a few leads in this case. Now, I know earlier the only known witnesses to this event said they saw an older couple dropping something off in a car as the one reported, but the most significant lead involved a 23-year-old man named Johnny Young. Johnny was a Millen native, but lived in New Jersey at the time. Johnny was investigated after his friend called the police, alluding that they should talk to Johnny about that murder. Even more interesting, Johnny's uncle claimed to have seen him with a Puerto Rican woman who may have even matched Jane Doe's description. Here's where things get even more questionable. Johnny's uncle claims his nephew was involved with true drug... Johnny's uncle claims his nephew was involved with two drug smugglers. One of these smugglers was dating this unidentified female. Johnny had run away with both the smuggler's money and the girl. Johnny did admit to knowing one of the smugglers, but not the other one, and he also stated that he did not know a Puerto Rican girl. The GBI could not find substantial evidence that Young had either been seen with such a woman or that she even existed. It would later come out that Johnny and his uncle had a strained relationship. This may have influenced the uncle to say some out-of-hand statements. This sounds like it would end here, but it doesn't. In the summer of 1991, Deputy Campbell of the Jenkins County Sheriff's Office received a phone call from an anonymous caller in New Jersey. This caller claimed that they know who killed the Jenkins County Jane Doe. The caller referred to Deputy Campbell by his first name and asked, Do you remember that girl? And said that he was tired of running. This caller claimed he had tried to turn himself into the New Jersey police, but they had not believed him. The caller told Deputy Campbell to come pick him up and hung up the phone. Deputy Campbell has never been able to contact the caller again, but the family believes it was Johnny Young who called him that day. They eventually tracked Johnny down and questioned him about the phone call. He denied that he had ever made the call and relayed the same story as the first interview, but he did add in some new details, like how his uncle and another man had shown him the dumpster at some point before Jane Doe had been found. The GBI re-interviewed Johnny's family and friends, but this also ended up just as a dead end. Since this initial lead, though, no new information has been developed in this case. The only suspect we had died in 2006. Crow Field's funeral home in Millen cremated Jane Doe's body. It is unclear why they did this as murder victims are usually not burned, but seeing as Millen is a small town, it is not unfathomable that something like this would happen. Even though the GBI did attempt to retrieve unusable DNA from the bedding found with her remains. On the brighter side, her dental records and fingerprint could be used to help identify her one day. Many searches to find a match have been unsuccessful thus far. And that is where the story of the Jenkins County Jane Doe ends, at least for now. Thanks for listening to these creepy and downright strange true crime horror stories. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to hit that like button as it helps me out a ton. With this episode likely being demonetized, every like helps. If you could leave a comment down below, letting me know what you thought of the episode, that would really help it be pushed more in the algorithm as well. I would love to have a bunch of eyes on these cases to potentially help solve them. If you have a case that you would like to suggest, be sure to comment them. If you have links or resources, be sure to send them in at swampdweller.net. I'd love to see your suggestions. If you have your own personal scary story to share, send it in at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description. I'd love to share it in a future episode. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Be sure to hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications to never miss a new episode as I upload them nearly every single day on all things natural and supernatural. If you could give this a 5 star rating over on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, that would be incredibly helpful to the swamp. If you're on the go but don't have YouTube Premium but would still like to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Spotify, Apple Podcast, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, and just about anywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. Thank you guys as always for supporting the Swamp, and I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode.